Hi, this is Professor Kate Floros in the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. As a kid, I was taught the Thanksgiving myth of the celebration of friendship between Puritan settlers who fled England in search of religious freedom and the local Indians who helped them survive in their new home until they could enjoy a successful harvest. While this is a nice story, it doesn't have a very strong foundation in reality. Still, the holiday Americans celebrate on the fourth Thursday of November every year has some ideas worth celebrating. It's nice to take a pause and appreciate the people who help give life meaning, including family and friends, colleagues and neighbors. I'm thankful for a great deal this year. Despite several COVID infections in my immediate family, no one had severe symptoms and all seemed to be doing well. I'm privileged to have a job that I love that allowed me to stay safe during the pandemic while still working and getting paid. I'm grateful to all those who continued to work at grocery stores and restaurants, on public transit, and as delivery drivers, taking risks with their health to allow the rest of us to stay safe at home. The health professionals who cared for the sick and dying are true heroes, and those who cleaned public spaces to reduce virus transmission should be continually celebrated. I'm also thankful for my students who inspire me to be a better professor and who give my life meaning by allowing me to help them reach their goals. I'm not going to lie, sometimes they make me wanna scream, but much more frequently, their kindness and energy makes me excited to be a professor. A subset of students who make me particularly happy are those affiliated with UIC Radio. These students allow me, a weird, nerdy professor, to crash their student organization and broadcast conversations about politics on their airwaves. They affirm me and my show. They help me with technical problems. They give me advice about how to make the show better, and they make me feel valued for my contributions. I've always wanted to have my own show, though my original dream involved TV rather than radio, but UIC Radio has helped make that dream a reality. Friends, family, and students, and probably colleagues, roll their eyes when I geek out about the politics classroom. But the radio crowd always waits until I can't see them before rolling their eyes. Their support and encouragement mean the world to me, and I wish them the very best. In addition to the excuse to show gratitude for life's blessings, a major benefit of Thanksgiving, for those with the privilege of abundance, is leftovers. Thanksgiving leftovers, at least in the Floros residence, didn't last long, but they were appreciated just as much as the original meal. Sure, there may have been some dishes missing, and the plate may not have looked as fancy as on the day itself, but the food was still delicious, filling, and a pleasure to consume. So in honor of Thanksgiving leftovers, today's show features parts of various conversations with podcast guests that didn't make it into their original shows. The content was good, but time restraints meant I had to trim the fat. See what I did there? I had a vague idea of producing a show on resistance across issue areas, and to some extent, the segments in today's shows fit into that theme. However, as with a good meal made up of leftovers, some segments are a little off topic. So let's get started on the post-Thanksgiving leftovers edition of The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio.
You're listening to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Kate Floros in the Political Science Department at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Today's show includes parts of my conversations with previous guests, including Professor Susan Ortiz, a sociologist at Warren Wilson College, Professor Lynn Hudson, an historian from UIC, Professor Andrew Flores, a government professor at American University, Daniel Williams, a doctoral student in political science at UIC, and Professor Jay Phelan, a biologist at UCLA. I'd like to start with more of my conversation about critical race theory with Professor Susan Ortiz. I was unable to air all of Professor Ortiz's historical foundation of the creation of race as a concept. Here, Professor Ortiz talks about how early slavers justified enslavement of Africans, the spread of enslavement to the indigenous people of the Americas, and resistance efforts during slavery. So you have these laws and policies being created, you have cultural transmission of things through books and media and plays and you you name it. Mm -hmm. And so it is trying to understand how these laws and policies shape culture. And that is all at a you know systemic and institutional level. So if you think about culture, it's literally everything, our way of life, our language, our institutions like our education system, the work and the economy. So we want to examine how racism might impact the economy, how it impacts things like the media, our state governments, our local governments, our national governments. I'll give you lots of examples. I want to hear them all. Sure. So one of the earliest was Prince Henry of Portugal. So Prince Henry was looking to expand his wealth and the dominance of Portugal and was tired of using Muslim slave traders who were bringing slaves over from mostly Slavic communities. So if you think about Eastern Europe. Wait, 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 wait. So there were Muslim slave traders who were bringing people from today's Eastern Europe to Portugal and selling them to Portuguese people. Yeah, so essentially Prince Henry wanted to cut out the slave traders and get the slaves himself. And so this is around the early to mid 1400s. So Henry starts trying to find alternative routes to Africa. And Prince Henry made a lot of money doing these African raids and came back and sort of had found this new way of going down into Africa to get slaves as opposed to using these Slavic people who had been coming across from the east to the west. So now it became more of a south to the north and the slaves changed from Slavic people to people of African descent. Mm -hmm. So after Prince Henry's death, a book was written by one of his commanders about why he was doing this thing he was doing. So this is after his death, which I think is really important. So this book got written to explain why he was taking slaves from Africa. And really, it started to justify his racist policies by saying that he was actually saving people and saving souls. So again, this came after his death. He wasn't saying this, but the people writing about what he did were saying that, oh, the only reason we started this slave trade was because we were interested in saving people's souls and that slavery was an improvement upon their own free state in Africa. 
And what's interesting is in 1466, a Czech traveler noticed how much money was being made by selling all these captives to foreigners. Yet this book is saying that it, that's not what it was about. It wasn't about money, even though they were making tons of money, that no, it was actually about saving souls and that living this new life as a slave was better than being free in Africa. And so you start to see justifications for slavery based on this idea of you know, Christianity saving these people. You start to see debates between why there's people of all these different skin colors and have all these different communities and cultures. Two big theories come forward, climate theory and curse theory. So climate theory was the idea of people just of different climates have different skin colors and et cetera. And it also allowed for Europeans to become superior the way they lived. And people actually believed in some cases that you could take people who were darker skinned and in tribal regions and bring them to Europe and that their skin would actually lighten and their hair would straighten and turn blonde. If they were just exposed long enough, basically to white Europeans. Oh, wow. And so that's called climate theory. And that was really tested when I believe it was George Best was exploring in the Arctic and came across the Inuit people who were darker hair, darker skin. And that didn't really fit with the idea of climate theory being mm -hmm. that just exposure to the sun would darken people's skin. And that's where it came from. The other theory is a curse theory, and that is a religious theory about Noah's son, Ham, being cursed. And so the cursed descendants of Ham supposedly had darker skin and were black. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you look at religious texts now, you know, many authors say that there is no reference to race or any kind of skin color in the Bible related to Ham's children being cursed. But translations, whether through Judaism or Islam or Christianity, all sort of started adding this element of skin color and race to something that didn't exist, actually, um, if you look at the texts. So the translations added skin color, and that became another theory of why Africans or darker skinned people should be slaves. So you have all these ideas sort of going around and you see from the 1400s up into the 15th, 16th century where travel writers, playwrights, people who could have access to language and, and the written word start writing about why there are these differences. You see the terms black and white being used a lot. But again, that was still separate from this idea of race per se. So it was just more of a phenotypic thing, looking at differences. Going back to George Best, Best started to say that Africans were actually a social mirror for Europeans. And so these ideas about Africans started to develop in a very negative way, talking about them as being greedy and undisciplined or hypersexual or you name it, just a lot of just horrible ideas being attached to Black bodies. And that was part of justifying slavery. Mm -hmm. So you could say they were basically not human or at least not as good as Europeans, then you start, can start to justify slavery. And so you see that just spreading. Even playwrights like Shakespeare would in, mm. include these ideas of dark-skinned people as exotic and strange and not as good as Europeans or people who we might identify as white. So we don't really see race, the term race, be used yet. 
So even though people are talking about black or white or African or European, we're still not using the term race. In much of the history of the world, it didn't exist. It was all about ethnicities. So where you were from, the language you spoke, the cultures you had, your traditions, your values, et cetera. And that could change. For a long period of time, you could actually change your ethnicity if you adopted people's cultures and customs and language and values. You could then pass down that to your children and they would be considered of that same ethnic group, even if they were from a different geographical region or had ancestors who had spoken a different language. Okay. And then you see this sort of promotion of a couple of things, right? Exploration and spreading Christianity and wanting to basically capitalize and command the world. You see everyone wanting to get on this. This is why Christopher Columbus set out to begin with, to try to capitalize on so many of the things that were happening. Obviously, there were indigenous populations that were already in the North American continent and had been here for centuries. Mm -hmm. And so as Columbus and more people from Europe start coming over, we see a shift from enslaving people of African descent to also the enslavement of the indigenous population that was in the United States. Right. And that was part of the first major economic expansion was the enslaving of the indigenous population. That's what allowed for you know the English, the French, the Spanish to be able to do a lot of their expansion in the colonies was through the enslavement of these indigenous groups. So you still had a lot of enslavement of Africans in Europe, but the Atlantic slave trade was really happening more in Central and South America than it was in the United States. Okay. Obviously, that's going to change. I think what's interesting is you have groups resisting these ideas, right? So just because in this case, white men are creating these laws that say whites can only be citizens, that Black people can be enslaved, it's perfectly okay. You have resistance to that too, and I think that's important to talk about. So Angela Davis writes a lot about the resistance in particular of Black women being one of the few people who had access to a small amount of time that was not controlled by slave owners, and that was in the home where they were able to organize and plan to resist, whether it was running away or poisoning their masters or setting people's houses on fire or doing work slowdowns. And so Davis writes about these acts of resistance that happened happened all throughout slavery that we don't really think about. Going back to the revolution, I mean, some argue hundreds of thousands of slaves were fighting against the Americans because they thought that the war of independence should be a war of also ending slavery. Mm -hmm. And so you have many slaves fighting against the United States because they wanted to be free. Sure. And we don't really talk about, right, a lot of the resistance related to these things. Something else that happens is the Haitian Revolution, in right. which the Haitians overthrow the French, and you see enslaved people setting themselves free. And that was really inspirational. And so for slaves who had access to this information, that was very powerful, which is why then you see laws passed forbidding slaves from being taught how to read and write because they obviously did not want them to be inspired by these different forms of resistance and revolutions happening in other parts of the world. That's crazy. 
And I think what's interesting, too, is what we don't talk about in Reconstruction, too, where there were senators, Republican senators, who were arguing that we actually also need to take the word white out of the Naturalization Act of 1790. Okay, so now Civil War, we have all these through the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, we have people of color who are now citizens, Black men are given the right to vote, we have birthright citizenship, these ideas related to those amendments. So there was a push in Congress to take the word white out of the Naturalization Act by obviously, we need to stop saying that white people can only be citizens. And that never passed. It never Hmm. passed. And so why is that? So you have free slaves, freedmen now being considered citizens. And you have Republicans in Congress saying we need to take the word white out of the Naturalization Act and allow other people to be citizens. And what happened here was, I think, fascinating is you had other things happening in other parts of the country, in particular California, where you had a lot of people of Chinese descent and Chinese ancestry. Mm. And there was a huge uprising of anti-Chinese sentiments. Mm -hmm. Chinese Exclusion Act. Chinese Exclusion Act, exactly. And so in 1882, that Chinese Exclusion Act passes. And one of the reasons that Sumner's push to get white taken out of the Naturalization Act is denied is because of this fear of Chinese nationals and Chinese immigrants coming over. And so you had a large anti-Chinese sentiment at this time rising Mm -hmm. while um, Reconstruction is ending. Professor Ortiz's discussion of the Chinese Exclusion Act and California's role in the failure to remove the link between whiteness and citizenship in U.S. law dovetailed nicely into my conversation with UIC's Professor Lynn Hudson. Because Professor Hudson and I discussed multiracial segregation in California, I asked her about anti-Asian bias, especially around the COVID pandemic, and the anti-Mexican sentiment around the passage of Proposition 187 in 1994. It seems like people can't tell the difference among different Asian nationalities and because of rhetoric about the origins of the coronavirus, that there's been a lot of increased violence against Asians and Asian Americans. And I'm wondering if that is a function of the rhetoric and the coronavirus, or if this is something that has continued to go on discrimination against Asian Americans in California, and we just didn't hear about it until it became national, et cetera. Oh yeah. There's always been anti-Asian sentiment and violence across the West, you know, from the beginnings of anti-Chinese movement and the alien land laws in California that devastated Japanese American families and much of their land was taken and then internment, of course. So that's a constant of Western history and and national history. Yeah, I don't think we should be surprised that we're seeing a flare up of that again. The period between, say, the 1965 immigration law that took away all of the really restrictive policies on immigration from Asia and today, 
was that a period of quiet discrimination? Was it not quiet discrimination, but only people in California knew about that? Was it relatively okay? But then when those narratives get triggered, it comes back with a vengeance. I, I guess I'm just trying to get a sense of the state of the state after the civil rights movement to today in terms of everyday treatment of different racialized minority groups. Well, it just depends on who we're talking about, where and when. Yeah, okay. Lots of localized discrimination. So pick a town in Southern California gets pissed off because the Vietnamese community in Long Beach is moving into their area, you know, then, okay. then they're going to have some, you know, I mean, so I can't answer. Yeah. Localized there, there's all kinds of anti-Asian sentiment that flares up around our Asian students taking in this too many spots in the education system. In the right. State, you know? So I mean, there are all kinds of ways that anti-Asian sentiment, we see it in, you know, across the state throughout the 20th century. Okay. And it, it, it will depend on the local and the strength of the, frankly, of the white supremacists. I did want to talk just a little bit about Proposition 187 from 1994 in which approximately 59% of California voters approved the ballot measure establishing a state-run citizenship screening system and the law prohibited undocumented immigrants from using non-emergency healthcare, public education, and other state services. And it was challenged in court the day after it passed and was found unconstitutional three days after it passed. But what do you think accounts for almost 60% of voters in that election supporting that proposition to basically say, you know, let's not educate children and provide people health care because of their immigration status? Well, I mean, obviously, this begins, California was Mexico, right? So this begins with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in right. 1938. So since then, and before then, of course, there is a longstanding resentment of the fact that you know, Mexican-Americans live in the state and were living in the state before most of the descendants of these folks. So this whole, they're taking our resources, they're taking our, you know, we, we've seen this anti-immigrant bias and hate throughout U.S. history. Nothing sure. new there, nothing mm -hmm. new there in, in the West. It focuses on that border because they live on that border and they were carved out of Mexico. So it has to do with that, obviously. And it's also feeds off of this whole, they're taking our jobs. Now, all you have to do is look at the history of the Bracero program to see how fast that rhetoric can shift when during World War II and beyond that Mexican-Americans were welcomed, Mexicans were welcomed in across the border, promised housing, food, and a fast track to citizenship. So, I mean, the, the sort of inconsistencies of our policy are only too obvious Right. Even, even to the untrained eye. Right. So it's clear that these are being whipped up, you know, white folks and others who are anti-immigrant. You know, they will always find a place in the U.S. They have always found a platform. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not really surprising that would pass. Was there anything in particular going on at the time that made this a particularly ripe opportunity to pass such a ballot initiative. I mean, was property well, tax, home, right? Yeah, ninety-four. Tax, right. So you know, Reagan had successfully cultivated supporters of this kind of mm -hmm. rhetoric, right? And you know, the new right had laid down heavy footprints across the state. Mm -hmm. Rush Limbaugh, the folks like that, they were very adept at manipulating and organizing that kind of those kind of folks into a movement. So that by the time we get to those years, they were well organized. But again, I would argue those also have roots in the kind of white supremacist 
attitudes that I document in the 40s, beginning in the 40s, and the hostility towards the Great Migration and the Black folks who come in, and Mexicans who come in, beginning with the Mexican Revolution. So it's not, it wasn't a new kind of anti-immigration sentiment. It was just at that moment organized around that particular law. But all of those different constituencies had been growing and organizing themselves. Is there still under the current in many places in the state, it oh, wouldn't sure. even take much to reactivate this? Oh, sure, sure. You know, there's folks who support, you know, all across the inland valleys, Fresno, Bakersfield, those kinds of places, Riverside, the, near Fontana, where my family that I talk about that gets murdered, who are Trump supporters who believe the election was rigged. Oh, yeah. California has had a long history of that. So not surprising. Yeah. And you successfully documented it in your book. And just a part of it, just a tiny part of it. Sadly, I, it's just a bit. Yeah. California is such a big state with an interesting long history, but the California story is an American story. It's localized to California in your telling, but it's the ideas and the movements and the resistance right. is certainly not. Yes. I hope it's a Western story, but it's a national story too. Switching from race and ethnicity to gender and sexuality, many of my previous guests spoke about the intersection of gender and sexuality and gender and race. American University's Professor Andrew Flores spoke about lesbians in the women's rights movement, while Professor Ortiz discussed the role of Black women being the custodians of the House of Resistance. UIC's Daniel Williams then takes over to talk about lesbians and women generally often being saddled with secretarial duties which inadvertently triggered some trauma from my past. This segment concludes with part of my conversation with UCLA's Professor Jay Phelan about the drawbacks to personal disclosure by female professors and the importance of dressing up to teach, especially if one is ridiculously handsome. The shorthand for talking about sexuality tends to be gay or straight and gay is what men who have sex with other men are called. We talk about gay men and lesbians. The term gay first came up in the mid sixties and it was a guy who put it on his sign in front of the white house. I'm just wondering how much of the adoption of that term as an out of date shorthand is a function of early activists who got attention identifying as men. That's a good question. I'll, I'll tie this also back into early activism, or early organizing in the homophile era. So there are two primary organizations that were developed in the 50s. One was the Mattachine Society, which was primarily composed of gay men um, and primarily composed of white middle-class gay men in urban centers. And the second organization was the Daughters of Elitists. And the Daughters of Belitis was primarily for gay women or lesbians, but the Daughters of Belitis was actually a group that was considered itself more of a social group than one that was a political group. It would take time and development and change in kind of leadership and, um, to kind of give that organization a somewhat more political edge. And so when, it, when you think about political spaces, and if you think about just American politics or mm -hmm. studies of women in politics in general, mm -hmm. politics tends to be thought of as a, a man's space, right? Yeah. And so Mattachine 
was more politically oriented, had more political goals in terms of its mission statement than the Daughters of Belitis. And so maybe the, the gendered nature of politics might have trickled into kind of how these organizations saw themselves. Mm. It's a hypothesis, because I don't, I don't know if I have strong reading that would help further support that, but I think it makes sense. The reason why the term lesbian is used as well as gay man, and then that gay women will sometimes call themselves gay, or they will use the term lesbian, uh, actually links itself to radical feminism and the women's liberation movement. There was a period of time where gay women and lesbians sort of saw the mainstream gay rights movement as prioritizing the issues that are pertinent to gay men and marginalizing the issues that would be important to lesbians. So lesbians would be much more active and involved in the women's liberation front and women's liberation and what was going on in the gay movement. Um, but they also faced exclusions there. So this is where Betty Friedan called lesbians the lavender menace and tried to silence, marginalize, and kind of push out lesbian activists from the women's movement, in part because she thought that lesbian activists would undermine the women's claim to equal rights. And so there was this, I guess it would be kind of a messaging concern, but the radical lesbians did organize and stake their claim in terms of their centrality in the women's movement and also created kind of a new ways of understanding our social world and critiques of our social world. And this is where you get lesbian feminism as a school of thought within mm. feminist thought. It wouldn't be until maybe the 1980s and AIDS where you saw stronger linkages and connections between lesbian activists and gay activists. Mm. It started slightly before then. So in the, in the mid-70s, Anita Bryant ran a campaign in Miami-Dade, Florida called the Save Our Children campaign. Uh, and this was in response to Miami-Dade passing a non-discrimination ordinance that included sexual orientation. And so as kind of a lashing back to that policy, she ran this campaign that put the ordinance on a referendum. So put the voters in Miami-Dade to vote on whether or not this policy should actually be a law. And she was successful um, in, the 19, in the 1970s. And after, after that success, we saw similar types of pieces of proposals in, in cities and in locations where non-discrimination ordinances were passed, pursue similar attempts to try and repeal those laws via direct vote. And so this politicization of one's sexual orientation that cut across gender mm -hmm. also provided another mobilizing tool to kind of mobilize and unite, say, lesbians and gay men, which grew stronger because of HIV AIDS activism. Wow. Thank you for that. Just another Chicago side note that one of the loudest anti-lynching voices was Ida B. Wells. Yes. Daughter of Chicago. You know, I think what's interesting with thinking about the intersection of gender and race is that Black women were often leading the way and leading the charge trying to get these laws passed to prevent some of this terrorism and lynching. And in the civil rights movement, you know, it was their personal experiences of sexual assault on buses that contributed tremendously to the um, civil rights movement bus boycotts. Mm. Is that it was the it was Black women who were being terrorized on these buses and often in, in a very sexualized manner. Angela Davis calls Black women the custodians of the house of resistance. And I really appreciate that phrase, that throughout slavery and throughout the segregated terror from the Jim Crow South and up to the civil rights movement, that Black women have been the custodians of the house of resistance for much of what was happening. 
one of my favorite books on black women's political thinking, uh, mm -hmm. black feminism is called All the Blacks Were Men, All the Women Were White, But Some of Us Were Brave. Hmm. All the Blacks Were Men. All the Blacks Were Men, All the Women Were White, But Some of Us Were Brave. Interesting. I mean, one of the stories you hear over and over again when you're reading histories of the early queer rights movement is a bunch of people getting together to talk around the table about some issue and someone turning to one of the lesbians and saying, would you make us some coffee? Oh, no. Oh, over and over and over again. There's the experiences <laughs> of being queer. Right. And there's the experiences of being women. But they aren't separate. They happen at the same time. So being a queer woman leads to that experience in a way that being either queer or woman doesn't. Okay. When I used to lead workshops, I, I started noticing that whenever we would break out into groups to discuss topics, it was always the women who would wind up taking notes. So <laughs> I, I started having them play rock, paper, scissors to decide who would take notes at the beginning, which was a great icebreaker, but also made sure that women weren't stuck with those secretarial duties yeah. and missing out on the participation because of that unspoken assumption that yeah. that was what women did in a group. That was how they were able to contribute. You're giving me flashbacks of eighth grade when in my American history class, I just told this story to a bunch of first year students in LAS the other day. I had these two guys and they were really conservative, which is fine, but they were also loud, which putting those two things together towards me was not what I enjoyed, but they were like, oh, you can be our secretary. And I said, the only secretary I'm going to be is the secretary of state. And nice. Then, and then, though, I didn't tell the first years this. They called in to a local radio station on Secretary's Day and nominated me. Oh, wow. And they claim to this day that they did that because of all the work I did for, like, student council or whatever. But that the radio station picked me. And I got called out of class to accept flowers oh that had my. been sent to me for Secretary's Day. And I started to cry. And these, I still don't think these guys get why that was problematic. But yes, anyhow, so I know, yes, I know what you're talking about. Oh, I, oh those flowers. I was so mad. All right. I wish that was shocking. Uh, I would love to live in a world where that was shocking. You may not be able to answer this, but do you think your female colleagues look at this differently or similarly to the way you did at the beginning? It's a great point because everyone faces that issue of how much credibility do I have here? And I think they, they're, there's plenty of evidence that says in many situations, there are professors, female instructors, or just any instructor who maybe doesn't fit into some mold that the students expect they're at a disadvantage in that the students might already not attribute qualities to them that they do have. So that thing like, oh no, I don't wanna reveal this. I don't wanna to look too human because then they'll think, well, why are we paying money for this person? So I absolutely understand that. And I don't know any easy answer to it because as I said, I know the evidence says self-disclosure is going to help you and it's going to help your students, but maintaining your respect and almost a sense of authority, content authority, 
also has value. I'll tell you a silly sort of thing that made a big impression on me. The very first time I was a teaching assistant, I was at Yale. The professor was this young guy, clearly extremely smart, but you know, he looked like a model. And he looked like a model in the sense that that was not helping him in his job. It was distracting. It's like, oh my God, because everyone sit there like, he's ridiculously good looking. But he showed up the first day of class and every day of class, he always had on a shirt and tie. Not a lot of instructors do that. Mm. I think some instructors even go the other way. I'll see people wearing surf shorts and a t-shirt and their philosophy is, I want them to understand I'm like them. But this guy wore a shirt and tie. And as I sat in the back there with my first time as a TA, I was aware of the impact it had on me. And that was that he's conveying without ever saying anything about it, he's conveying that he has respect for the endeavor that this is a real thing, this is serious, and he cares about it. I made a little note to myself in my notebook, if I'm ever a professor, wear a shirt and tie. It's not that hard. <laughs> and it can you know, take any benefit you can. So when I finally started doing it, I didn't even own a, a tie <laughs> and all, you know, no dress shoes or anything. But I thought, okay, you know, I can solve that problem. So I went out, bought the shirt and ties and have always done that just because I, I think of it as almost I'm ruthless in anything that will increase my effectiveness, I will do. <laughs> so still after 25 years, you're still wearing Absol a shirt and Absolutely, tie. absolutely. And, and it has an a, a effect on the students. I remember students uh, asking one, someone, someone told me, they're like, you know, we've been trying to figure out how many ties you have. Every day looks kind of similar, but it's different. And then someone said, hey, you know, <laughs> we noticed that you've only got a couple of light blue dress shirts. And it was just one of these silly things, but it made me think, wow, they really are keyed in to a lot of things. And I laughed and I took a picture because I, I went to the cleaners on the way home and I like light blue dress shirt. That's always what I buy. But I picked up my my dress shirts and I had something like 30 of them, but they were all identical. <laughs> And so I, I had a picture for the next class. I said, just in case you think I'm wearing the same shirt every day, uh, I'm wearing the same shirt, but a different iteration of it. That's too funny. My final segment on this post-Thanksgiving leftovers episode of the Politics Classroom deals with organizing for political change, marriage, data issues in the study of queer politics. We actually got a bit off track before concluding with the inevitability of backlash. Professor Flores speaks first and then Daniel Williams. So this is skipping ahead a little bit, but does the fact that there are different ways to think about both sexuality and gender and lots of interpretations within the LGBTQ community about these things, does that make political activism more complicated or it can simply be boiled down to humans are humans, everyone should have the same rights, period, the end? 
That's a good question. It does create questions about inclusion and representation, say, in what LGBTQ activism is. How do you define a rights agenda for an incredibly diverse and dynamic group of individuals where you can think that the boundary lines between, say, who is in the LGBTQ community and who is not, is not necessarily stable. We know, for example, from social science work that at least studies of women have shown that women can fluctuate in their sexual identity over the life, their life course, where mm. at one point in time may identify as straight, uh, another point in the lifetime identify as lesbian, and then maybe at another point in lifetime, it may actually not identify as lesbian anymore, but maybe bisexual or straight. Other studies of men tend to show that that tends to be more of a linear process, but, you know, sexuality is dynamic. And then our young, younger generations, of course, are coming out, one, young, at a younger age, but then two, at rates higher than, say, older generations. And this may in part be a reflection of how much society has changed. Mm -hmm. But then also younger generations have, are using new and different terminologies. And us on the social science side and, and those in the advocacy world are having to keep up with kind of what is this dynamic and fluid group. So that does make it a challenge in terms of what you organize around and who you mobilize, say, as an LGBTQ. Uh, with that said, one of the major things that I, uh, that I try and point out when I teach LGBTQ politics is that this social movement, per se, is one that has political goals and cultural goals. Okay. Um, and so you can think of policy like non-discrimination policy, marriage equality, and hate crime laws, and things like that. But there's also this like cultural understanding and acceptance of diversity in mm. terms of sexuality and gender. And so sometimes if people just focus on the policy, they might they might take a more narrow view of who LGBT people are, or who LGBT advocates are, because if you look at what policies are being passed, they're kind of addressing maybe a slice of say LGBT people. But, okay. I go, but if you look at what is going on culturally and just how we're seeing varieties of sexuality and gender getting represented say in mass media, that you can see that there's much more diversity of representation and that the movement, at least how I conceptualize it, is, is simultaneously pursuing say these political ends, but also these kind of cultural ends as well. Interesting. You mentioned at the very beginning, street activism. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what street activism is and the role that plays in the American political process? So street activism is trying to influence policy through public acts trying to increase the salience of an issue to bring it to the mass public's attention and to the attention of policymakers by public performance. Um, and often the goal there is to get as many people on the street as possible to demonstrate that the issue affects a large number of people. But other times you're relying on theater. Maybe you only have a few people and so you're trying to create a spectacle in order to draw attention, in order to get media attention, get it on people's screens, have them engage in an issue. And there's lots of issues, you know, most people are not familiar with most issues. Right. This is, you know, Robert Dahl, Mir Dahl talking about, we are incentivized to not pay attention to politics unless it directly affects our lives, mm -hmm. most of the time. So part of what, street activism is trying to do is make the issue directly affect your life. So if the highway is shut down to protest for Black Lives Matter and your commute is disrupted, mm -hmm. you have to pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're not happy, 
but you're thinking about it, whereas before you might not have been. Okay. Is this seen as, I mean, obviously we saw Black Lives Matter protests all over the country. We've seen women's marches all over the country. There were die-ins during the height of the AIDS crisis. The anti-war movement during the Vietnam era, civil rights marches. There's a strong tradition of the street level activism in American politics to make issues salient, to bring them to the public's attention and get them engaged on the issue when they otherwise wouldn't be. And how much does that street activism lead to actual changes in policy? I mean, we, we know that the, you know, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, but people were protesting on that issue for, for decades. decades, right? So eventually something might happen. Is this just like, is this kind of like naming and shaming human rights abuses where it's a, like a drip of water that eventually creates the Grand Canyon? Or is it something that can it lead to more, or has it historically led to more timely or, uh, you know, that, that action, that policy changes relatively soon after this, this public protest? I would suggest that street activism is a necessary but insufficient component of policy change. Okay. Street activism alone doesn't create policy. That's not policy. That is issue definition, which is okay. the stage before we create policy. But without street activism making an issue salient, lawmakers have limited resources. Lawmakers have limited time. They are not going to dedicate their time to an issue unless the public makes it salient or unless it's made salient on its own. You know, terrorism was a threat before 9-11. Sure. It's not until 9-11 happens that the issue becomes salient and policymakers are compelled to change policy. Okay. Queer people existed before 1992. Right. But it took a critical mass of activism to make those issues sufficiently salient for the Clinton administration to start addressing them. Black people were being murdered by police officers yeah. before the Black Lives Matters movement. Mm -hmm. But Black Lives Matter has made that issue salient with a public, including a lot of white folks like me, mm -hmm. that otherwise might not be thinking about it. And so because it's now salient, because it is now on the public catalog of things policymakers have got to work on, we are starting to see policy changes. Mm -hmm. We are starting to see City of Chicago shift some things around on how they train police officers, challenge the police union in ways I've never seen a Chicago mayor challenge the police union like this before. We're starting to see other cities shift funding around, move more funding into services and away from enforcement. Change is happening as a result of that street level activism that I don't think would have happened without the street level activism. Okay. But you also need people in the halls of power drafting policy, talking to lawmakers, working committee hearings, doing whip counts on what's going to happen. You have to have both. It's got to be both. And mm -hmm. I think there is a temptation on both street activism and lobbyists to denigrate each other's work that I think is really damaging, mm. really harmful, because you got to have both. We're, we're not going to go there. Okay. And then two years later. No, I think we should go there. I do think we should go there because it's, so it's ridiculous that our institutions so promote marriage as this normative good 
Like how much money does our government spend enforcing policies to encourage people to get married and saying that this kind of relationship is the kind of relationship we want people to have when there are so many other kinds of relationships, when there are so many other kinds of ways of living, when being single is a perfectly fine thing to be. And there are lots of people out there living happy, fulfilling lives as single people. I would like the federal government to pass a law that says that buy one, get one free dinners, (laughs) that you have to extend that to single people who want to take the second dinner home because some restaurants don't do that. I had no idea. That's married married privilege right there for you. I had no idea they won't let you take the second meal home. Some, some do. Many don't. One of the big reasons why queer people shouldn't serve in the military is because it would affect unit cohesion and good discipline. That's the argument, right? Yes, that is the argument. But they also made that argument against integrating the military. They also make that argument against allowing women into combat units and women into various specific roles within the military, like fighter pilots. Mm -hmm. You can gloss over a lot of things by claiming unity. So the question is, were there any, individually, there were probably homophobic people who did not treat out military members well, but the U.S. military did not drop in its ability to engage in its activities overseas or whatever, right? I mean, like, there basically, there was nothing to That's it. an interesting measurement question. I don't know if anyone's looked at it, and I'm not sure how you would measure it. How do you measure military effectiveness in response to that policy change and control for other factors? It's, it's a beautiful methodological question for a political scientist, and, you know, maybe there's someone listening to this podcast right now who's got a handle on how you could do it and hey there's your dissertation right there or a co-authorship with me contact me (laughs) on twitter at dr floros i have a paper i'm presenting at southern the southern political science conference in january that i'm using data on municipal non-discrimination ordinances to talk about municipal direct democracy so the actual focus of this study is municipal direct democracy. Can you just explain what municipal direct democracy is? Absolutely. So direct democracy is when, by whatever means, government goes to the people and says, what should we do about this? So you're not electing representatives who will then decide policy that would be indirect democracy, but rather being asked to make a decision about a policy itself. And so this can take the place of public ballot initiatives where some group of the public can put something on the ballot. Sometimes you have a situation where certain kinds of laws may be constructed in ways that require the state to put the question on the ballot for people to vote on. There's any number of ways that this can happen, but anytime you have asking the public directly about a policy outcome, so that's direct democracy, and then the municipal just means we're doing it at the city level. Okay. So paper got accepted and I I got the information on what panel I'm on. And it's a panel of all papers that use data on queer issues. Now that paper could, that paper could have been on an urban politics panel. Mm -hmm. That paper could have been on a a representation panel. That paper could have been on a direct democracy panel, could have been anywhere. But because I'm using data about issues that affect queer people, it got put on a panel about queer people. 
what about backlash to so so i'm thinking about what's the alternative to backlash do nothing no 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 movements have to know that there's going to be backlash exactly I'm just wondering, do they then strategize how to mute that backlash or, or how to engage it? Or I mean, you engage in strategic communication. You try to couch what you're doing in the most favorable terms. But I, I, you know, I used to joke, anytime we were trying to push a policy in the Texas Capitol, you would go into a friendly office and they would be concerned about backlash. And so they would be trying to pull language back, find some middle ground, find mm. some way that this wasn't going to be quite so controversial. Mm. And I would tell them, we could endorse the flags for veterans bills and the anti-LGBT crowd is still going to call it part of the gay conspiracy. It doesn't matter how much you water down this bill. Someone is still going to say that it's Satan's doing. Okay. So why go by half measure when you're going to have backlash either way? Why not go for the whole enchilada? Why not protect as many people as possible? There you have it, the post-Thanksgiving leftovers episode of The Politics Classroom. I hope you are stuffed full of good information. You have definitely earned your post-turkey nap. Join me next time for brand new content, including perhaps a more in-depth discussion of the Thanksgiving Pilgrim Indian friendship myth. You've been listening to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros, and that's all I've got for this week. Class dismissed.